This is episode 53 with Kathy Headley, founder of the nonprofit organization Mothers Without Borders. And today we're talking about loving without borders and giving mothers a voice. In every continent I've worked on is that women are the agents for social change. So I'm very open about saying I am willing to listen to everyone but when we get down to developing programs and finding solutions to their hardest problems, I'm working with the women. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? Or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance, and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Citrus Love Podcast. You're going to be listening to a very loving and giving and caring episode, A Mother's Journey. And this is just perfect as we enter the holiday season with Kathy Headley. So she is a mother of five and the founder and CEO of the nonprofit organization Mothers Without Borders. Kathy is bridging the gap between people who care and people that need to be seen. She is a dynamic thought leader who brings together personal growth and community development in a synergistic manner that changes lives around the world. She founded Mothers Without Borders in 1989, so it's been over 31 years out of the United States. Mothers Without Borders basically focuses on work in Zambia, Africa, where they partner with and support local organizations, empower women, and care for the most vulnerable children, such as orphans. Uh, they provide food, housing, education for children, while also offering adult caregivers literacy and business skills training. She's an experienced international development specialist with a demonstrated history of working in the nonprofit organization management industry. She's skilled in nonprofit organization, coaching, corporate communications, fundraising, and community engagement. I won't go in too much detail about what she's been doing, but basically this conversation, we're going to be talking about her journey, how she got started in this. To be honest, it wasn't what she really wanted to do, start a nonprofit organization, but it happened and she was a stay-at-home mom and eventually she had this nonprofit organization, which she eventually started working, doing full-time. So of course, as a mother, I had to ask her how she managed it with five kids and being a stay-at-home mom and how she transitioned herself. So that's going to be later on in this conversation. So make sure to stick around and listen to that part. 
And the first part of the conversation, we talk about why she is doing the work she's doing with Mothers Without Borders and talking about some misconceptions that we might have or that you might have due to what else the media, the lovely media and the news and what we hear about these organizations, people that donate money, how they're using these funds and how you can give if you're interested and if you're feeling in the spirit of giving. Definitely, I'll put all the links on the website citruslove.com slash episode 53 if you are interested in um, learning more and donating for these mothers and helping these mothers and families. And of course, we had to talk about how she raised her kids. If you do enjoy this conversation, please make sure to leave us a a review for the podcast. So you can go to Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or on your smartphones, use the podcast app to leave a review. And when you share this episode, share it on Instagram, share it on Facebook, tag us at Citrus Love Podcast in helping raise amazing kids and in helping supporting mothers just like you or maybe you uh, later on. So with that being said, let's get to it and listen to this conversation. Welcome, Kathy, on Citrus Love Podcast. Thank you for taking the time today to have this conversation about your mom journey, your working journey. Thank you. Thank you for asking. I don't know if this is the right way to say it. Muli Shani? Yes, Muli Shani. Muli Shani. Yes, that's like, uh, it's like, hello, how are you? And I would say, and uh, probably a little more common right now is Muli Buanji. And I would say, Bueno Buanji. Mulishani is one of the dialects and Mulibwanji is another. So I would say, Bueno Buanji, which I'm saying, I'm fine. And how are you? <laughs> For the Zambia dialect. Yes, you, and you did it well. You did it very well. <laughs> you talk a lot about love and your mission statement in Mothers uh, Without Borders, uh, how love and empowering people to live a life infused with love. What do you mean when you talk about love? Is it time, generosity, a mother's love, like giving donations? What's your definition of that type of love? Uh, that's a great question. I think it, it, it embodies many, many things. And I think it, it's um, something that uh, it goes quite a bit beyond what we might in our current culture we might think of as uh, like romantic love. Sometimes yeah. that seems to get the most attention and, and I'm certainly not, I'm not disregarding that. That's a, that's a wonderful thing for people to experience. But I'm talking about the kind of love that is really right at the very core of who we are. And it encompasses being able to see each other really being able to see that every human being on the planet has a deep longing for happiness, for well-being, um, to be seen, to be heard. And that as we make an effort to join in that environment is as we make an effort to say, how do I, how do I make certain that I'm seeing the people who cross my path? How do I 
make certain that I tap into that place in me where I see people and hear people and recognize their deep longing for happiness and for well-being and for peace. How do I um, embody that and then express it into the world? So it may be expressed, uh, someone might might say, when I'm being generous with another person by uh, letting them in the line in front of me, um, or when I am being kind by holding my tongue when maybe something sarcastic or snippy mm-hmm. comes to mind. Okay, I'm laughing because that's my way of showing love is sometimes <laughs> being quiet. Um, and, uh, and so it can, it can take many, many forms. And I think probably um, I learned the most about love from being a mother, the, the privilege it was to be a mother and to feel the things that I did for these little human beings. They really didn't have to do anything to earn it. Um, it just was something that was very profound and very much there the moment they came into my world. Mm-hmm. You have five kids. How old were they when you had the idea for Mothers Without Borders? Yeah, so kind of what happened was um, my children, I was quite young when I began having children. I'm 67. My um, oldest child is 47. So I was just mm-hmm. about 20 when I had my first child. And I, my children range in ages between 30 and 47. When, my, when I was a young mother, I had the privilege of being able to stay at home and raise my children. And that was a great joy for me. And at the same time, I've always had a deep curiosity and empathy towards what's happening to human beings around the planet. And, and I wanted to expose my children to that. I wanted them to also see that children that were their age, no matter where they lived on the globe, no matter what their cultural experience was, that they had a lot of the same dreams and desires. And, and I wanted my children to be able to have that experience. So I actually started as a very young mother, exposing my children and taking them places where they could interact with children who had a very different cultural experience than we were having so that they could begin to develop this understanding that we're way more alike than we are different. Wherever you live, we're more alike than we are different. So that desire in me started just as a mother to expose my children. And it was in very simple ways. It, was in, it, it fit into the daily trajectory of our lives and the daily activity of our lives. It wasn't something that I had to make big plans. Examples? Yeah. Like, for example, um, when I lived in, um, and I've lived in a lot of different places around the planet. So there was a time when, because of my husband's work, uh, we were living overseas we were living in Taiwan. And I noticed that there was a lot of separation between a lot of the Americans and people from foreign countries. Uh, There 
were a lot of people from foreign countries who worked there, expats. And I noticed that there was a lot of separation between the local people and their activities and kind of what they were doing. And then the expats kind of had their own community, which there's nothing wrong with that. That was, that was lovely that people wanted to join together. But what I wanted to do for my children was, since we were living there in Taiwan, I wanted to expose them to what were people doing in the communities around us? What did children do on a, you know, when they came home from school? What did children like to do on the weekends? What kind of food were people, were other people eating? What was, what was frightening and what was worrisome to their moms? I was curious about that. So I talked to some of the local people that lived in my neighborhood and said, you know, how can we kind of spend time together? What are some things that we can do together? And some of the women said, well, would you be open to uh, helping our children better their English language? Because they learn English in school, but they would, it would be great for them to have some English speaking kids to talk to. And I said, mm -hmm. yeah, and it would be great for my kids to have some children speaking Mandarin and who speak Taiwanese. That would be wonderful for my children. And, and your so kids it just were how old at that time? At that time, I think my youngest was two and my oldest was nine. Okay. And so it was just very organic, you know, it just came out of a desire to, for me to see people and for them to see me um, as I interacted with these women and we, we found ways to help overcome language barriers. We learned that, and I learned and they learned that our worries were the same. We all wanted our children to have a safe place to grow up. We all wanted our children to have a good education. We all wanted our children to be able to discover their hopes and dreams and and so all of a sudden now we were seeing that we were more alike than we're different and in very simple organic ways. And I will just tell your listeners that sometimes life itself feels very overwhelming. And I'll tell you, as a young mother living in a foreign country where I didn't speak the language and everything seemed just overwhelming to me to have young children and that's not true. My youngest wasn't too. My youngest was a baby when I first moved there. I moved there when she was about uh, four months old. Mm -hmm. And so I had a, like a four month old and a two year old and a, an eight year old when we moved there. And then when we left, they were, it was about two or three years after that. So I felt very overwhelmed and there was a real um, inclination on my part, partly because of my personality or partly just because of the degree of overwhelm. I just thought I just need to stay inside the walls of my own house and just hang in here and just survive and do the best that I can. But I found that as I started going outside of myself, reaching outside of myself in small ways to express my values and, and my compassion to other people, that friendships started to form, life became easier, people began showing up to help me with things that to me were overwhelming and to them it wasn't. It wasn't overwhelming for those um, lovely Taiwanese moms to help me go to the market and pick out the best meat. It wasn't overwhelming for them, it was overwhelming for me. And then it wasn't overwhelming for me to sit with these cute moms and read English language books to them so that they could improve their language so that they could help their children. And those things were not, they weren't big. They didn't take a lot of planning. They, it just was about reaching into our, our very genuine humanity and saying, how can I help? And then my children picked up on those things. And, and I noticed children 
can be quite natural and quite good at this. And sometimes I let my children take the lead in telling me, you know, what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Were your children in any way like hesitant or scared? You know, when it's a, a new environment, very different. Plus you don't understand the language and maybe the food, you don't recognize it. Were they more open and comfortable because you were uh, at a certain point? I mean, for those types of things, it really is up to the parent to create a kind of a safe container, a safe environment to say, you know, we're okay here. Yeah, this is different and we're okay. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to be worried sometimes and it's okay to miss your friends and it's okay to miss what's familiar. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a very human tendency to miss what is familiar. I think now with COVID, that's what many adults and children are feeling. They're feeling like I, I'm not in a place that's familiar anymore. I don't know how to do this. And mm -hmm. by kind of relaxing into it and saying, it's okay to have those emotions and it's okay also to be curious. And so what I attempted to do with my children was just infuse bits of curiosity um, into them and to reawaken those parts in them, which I think are natural. I think children are naturally curious. I don't know if your listeners are like me. I was the kind of mom that I would sometimes say, stop asking me so many questions <laughs> you know, because I felt so overwhelmed. And then I realized, okay, that curiosity that is just bubbling up from them we can utilize that as a very wonderful tool to help us in a difficult situation. Even simple things like, well, I wonder why I feel like this. I wonder why this is so hard for me. I wonder how long this is going to last, this feeling that I have. Mm -hmm. um, and then helping them through it in small ways, like saying, remember, before we went over to this person's house, you were nervous and you, you thought maybe they wouldn't want to play with you or maybe it you wouldn't know what to do. And then on the one we were walking home, just saying to them, how do you feel now? What changed? And, and using that natural curiosity that children have to help them explore this new world that's being created for us through COVID, through mm -hmm. political unrest, through social injustice that is being brought to the forefront. It's like use that natural curiosity and also saying to children, um, it's okay to feel what you feel. It's all right. Mm -hmm. exactly. And then they settle, they settle, and then they teach us to settle. So you were traveling a lot or moving from maybe different countries because of your husband's work. At what point did you start having this idea of mothers without borders? Let's so get into I think that one. I think it probably started um, at the very early on when I was a mother. You know, I, I think I had my first baby when I like in 1972 or three. I'm not that great with with the math, unfortunately. <laughs> um, my kids are brilliant in it, and they help me. But um, so I think it was about 1973, and and so I think I just began to see as I lived in different places that mothers. Going back to your question about the love, it was the love that mothers have, that mothers can have and can develop for their children 
and some have it very naturally. Some have to work a little bit more and that's fine. But this love that we have that is this nurturing quality that's very difficult to see how valuable it is to your children because you can't really measure it on a moment to moment basis. It just mm -hmm. notice it over time. And so um, as I noticed that, and then as I, as I went into areas of the world, probably Beginning um, in the late 70s and the early 80s, I was able to go into different parts of the world with different nonprofit organizations to see what was happening um, to children around the world. And one of the things I began to notice pretty profoundly in the late 80s was that children who, for whatever reason, whether it was um, political conflict in their area, or natural disaster or disease, children who lost their parents. What I began to notice um, was that those children, one of the primary things they were lacking was nurturing. So there were many agencies that were coming forward and saying, okay, we'll make sure they have healthcare and we'll make sure that they get educated and we'll make sure that they have you know, shelter and mm -hmm. we'll, make, or we'll make sure that they have dental care or we'll... And there wasn't really a whole lot of emphasis on people looking at what are these children lacking, um, these most vulnerable members of our global population, children who were either actual orphans or what's been come to known as economic orphans, children who, because their families can't provide for them, they were basically facing a lot of the same situations that children who had lost their parents were facing. So once I started noticing that this concept of nurturing wasn't really getting a lot of attention, and yet I think if you would ask your children um, or somebody else's children or even reflect on yourself, what's one of the most valuable things your family may have provided for you is the nurturing. And children need to be nurtured. We know that. Scientifically, we know that, that children who are not, who are not nurtured suffer from what is called failure to thrive. You work mainly with underdeveloped countries or in Africa. And for someone living in, I mean, I'm in Canada, you're in the United States, thriving country. When we think of what these kids need in these countries, you think, okay, they need shoes, they need books, they need crayons, they need food. So how can you bring this aspect of nurturing? Because it's very, it's specific to each child. Yes, it is specific to each child. And so so what happened was that I, as I began to see this, first, I was grateful for all the good organizations that are out there uh, trying to make a difference in the world mm -hmm. wherever they're trying to make it. And uh, it, it, it's not more important to make a difference in Africa than it is to make a difference in Canada. It, mm -hmm. it, what makes a difference is that you is that you tune into your personal actual values of kindness and compassion and generosity and hope and joy, and then embody that and express that into the world. So for me, what I realized was, yes, these children absolutely, especially if we're talking about um, children who've lost their parents or children who are in a place of conflict and war, 
So um, when I decided to start Mothers Without Borders, the first thing I did was come up with a mission, which was, which is, was then and is now, uh, nurturing and caring for orphan and vulnerable children as if they were our own and giving voice to the power of love. So as if they were our own means, we're going to do for children whatever they need. And it's individual to the child. Some children in some countries, what they need the very most is safety. Some children in some countries, what they need the very most is education, or they might need water, or they might need nutrition. And they, some children might need all of that, okay? So we work very, um, we work in a very targeted way where we work in different countries. We've worked, I don't know how many countries since I started this, uh, many. And we work with local people who are already reaching out into the communities to meet the needs of their communities. So, and the children in their communities. So how we do it is we work with local partners of caring individuals who understand the needs of the children in their community. And then in the training that we offer, it's about giving them permission to care for the people that they're caring for and not just provide services, but to care about the individual person that they are providing services for, to see them and to hear them and to empower them to be able to develop what they need. And so that just becomes an underlying foundation for everything we do. So we may be in a community drilling a well in South America or building a clinic or um, planting, helping widows plant garden in Mexico. But the way that we do it is by saying, making certain that everyone that we're working with is coming from the same foundational place of, I see you, I hear you, I care about you, and I want to help empower you so that you can create the life that you're seeking to create. And we do that with children and we do it with adults. And so that's kind of how we infuse everything, giving voice to the power of love is giving people permission to say, I care about what's happening in the world and I'm going to do my piece to help make it a better place. Does that answer that question? But I'm, I'm thinking, how can you be that specific and still be able to function as an organization? How do you choose like which ones you care for? Because there's so many people that need nurturing. Yeah, that's a really great question. So what's interesting, what I found over the last 30 years of doing this is that local people, for the most part, local people always know what is needed locally, much better than someone from the outside. Mm -hmm. So one of the guiding tenets of Mothers Without Borders is we value local wisdom. And basically what that means is I don't ever go into a community and say, here's what I think you need to do, or here's what I think you need. I go into the community and have, and, and become very curious and say, tell me what is, what are your biggest problems? And I talk to different groups within the community. So um, this is kind of how it would look, say, right now we're focusing most of our attention in Africa. Over the last 30 years, we've been in many places. Our, the point is to go into an area to find local community initiatives where people are already trying to make a difference in their community and empower them and give them some uh, capacity building skills so that they can continue to do what they're doing, mm -hmm. perhaps in a more efficient way, perhaps reaching more people, perhaps 
in adding more programs to what they're doing, then we leave. Once they're doing those things, we, we celebrate together and say, you're doing a great job, keep it up, and we go somewhere else. So what it would look like, for example, in Zambia, I'll give you a direct example, I think that might answer this question. So we go where we're invited to go, number one, meaning you have to ask. If someone asks me and says, hey, there's a community uh, to the east of the capital city of Zambia where there's five villages in this area. And what the government was noticing, what their Department of Social Welfare was noticing was that there were a lot of young women who were marrying at a very early age. They were marrying at the age of 12 and 13 or 14. And this was very concerning to their Department of Social Welfare, to their ministry, to their government, because they want their girls to get educated and they want their girls not to get married when they're 12 and 13 and 14. So they came to us and they said, can you help us? We were noticing this trend in this area and it's very concerning to us. So we said, uh, our local country director there, who is a, a Zambian woman, she's a social worker. Her name is Josephine. Josephine said, absolutely, I'll go out there and begin meeting. So the first thing she did is drive out there and ask the village headmen and the, and the headwomen, the, that's the tribal, that's their leadership, their, what we would call like their government leadership. She met with them individually and said, could I have a meeting um, with the leaders of your village? And they said, sure. And she explained why and who had asked her. And they were open to that. They said, yes, this is concerning to us as well. And so then she met with the government leaders first, the village headmen and headwomen and their local tribal government. And then she said, I would love to meet with the mothers in your community. Could we have a mother's meeting? So they set up a mother's meeting and she sat in a mother's meeting with these women. And basically she just listened and asked a lot of questions and she collected information from that and brought it back to me. And we sat together and said, okay, now we have kind of a picture of what's happening here. What is their greatest need? So why do you think those girls were getting married at the age of 12 and 13 or 14? You're asking me to help the, their families. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, it, because I was like, what, why? I mean, at first I'm just outraged, right? It's like, what? Okay. And you might've had the same reaction and your listeners might go, what? What's wrong with these people? Why are they letting their 12 year old daughters getting married? That's ridiculous. So here are these mothers sitting in front of us. And because we're, we're looking at them and saying, we care about you, we care about this problem, and we just want you to tell us, why is this happening and why is it increasing? And here's what they said. We're in the seventh year of a very terrible drought. The rivers where we were going to get water to water our crops have dried up. We can't feed our families. Hmm. Then they started talking about how many of their children they had buried. Okay? And they said, we can't afford to put, we don't have the money to buy shoes to put our daughters in school. And so what we know is that if we allow them to get married to someone who's agreeing to take care of them, they'll have food in their bellies. They will be taken care of. They'll have a place to sleep at night. But when we asked them, do you want your daughters? They said, no, of course not. So we said, well, what do you want for your children? And they said the same thing you or I would say. They said, I want her to go to school. I want her to get the job that she wants. I want her to be happy. And we said, all right, let's work together. Let's find local resources that are available to you here. And where there aren't local resources, let us help bring in some resourcing for you. 
And the mothers stood up and they, they celebrated. They were so grateful that someone was seeing them, that someone was hearing them, that someone cared about the things that kept them awake at night. And they're no different than the things that would keep us awake at night. So how does that translate to somebody back here in the United States? Well, as I go out and tell these stories and I say to someone, do you wanna help a mother? Do you wanna help a mother in another country who's simply trying to keep her daughter in school? Mm-hmm. Most women that I talk to and I say, and, and you don't have to go well out of your way or change your life or sell your house or go live in a tent to do that. I'm just asking, talk to your children about this. Do what I did 30 years ago. I sat down with my children and said, there's this terrible problem happening in these orphanages in Eastern Europe and in Romania and in these formerly communist countries. As a family, what do we want to do to help? And we talked about it. This was, you know, back in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And Mike, because I didn't know what to do. And we came up with some small things that our family could do. And that's what we're, and that's really was like how I started Mothers Without Borders is I thought, you know, there's mothers all over the world who care, who care and who, who they're not going to disrupt their lives. I'm not asking you to disrupt your lives. I'm asking you to expand your life and your vision and say, I can look at this problem because as we join together, and the reason I created an organization, because I didn't want to. Really? <laughs> no, I just wanted to live my life and raise my kids and, and have us do what we wanted to do. I wanted to help people in the world, but I didn't want to do it as an organization. And it's like, oh, that just sounds like boring. A lot. And I, it's like, I didn't, and people come to me now and say, oh, I want to do what you do. And I'll say, well, what do you think I do? Because I do a lot of administrative work. Do you love administrative work? Do you love looking at profit and loss sheets? Do you love filling out forms? Do you love government reporting? And they say, no. I say, then don't start a nonprofit. Don't do that. Because <laughs> that's, that's so what funny. you'll end up doing. So what I did is I thought, I want to create a bridge. I want to create a bridge between the most vulnerable people in the world. And they can live anywhere. They could live next door to me. All right? They, it's not geography vulnerability is something, economic vulnerability, um, emotional vulnerability. Those are things that are real. We just have to be open to seeing them. So my goal was I want to create an organization that builds a bridge between people who care and people who need to be seen. That's how it started. When you were talking about the story and this example, I kept thinking, this is something we don't hear about. Generally speaking, and I'm going to like overgeneralize it to the entire population who doesn't do or what you do and see what you've seen. We think, especially in these underdeveloped countries, we think male-dominated women have no voice. They're not allowed to go to school. Um, women do not speak up like we do over here. They're oppressed. and I'm kind of surprised myself by by this story because that's not what I would think about. Well, everything you've said is true. And what we are able to do by going in and saying, we do first meet with their tribal leadership, which is often male. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes female because it, the way that their tribal leadership is set up is a little bit unique, but um, sometimes it's a village head woman, so, but it's usually a village headman. And we do go and meet with them first. And then we say... 
you know, we're being respectful and saying, can we want to meet with the women in your community? Because what I'm very vocal about is those problems that you described, they exist. That is real. That's mm -hmm. a problem. That's one of the biggest problems I wanted to try to face and do something about, which means that I go into these places and I tell their leaders, the women in your community are the agents for social change. The women in mm. your community are the agents for social change because women are the agents for social change around the world, around the world. Whether we learn that being mothers or whether we were just born with that, I don't know, but I've seen it in every continent I've worked on is that women are the agents for social change. So I'm very open about saying I am willing to listen to everyone but when we get down to developing programs and finding solutions to their hardest problems, I'm working with the women and I'm giving the women a voice. And I'm saying, tell me what your biggest problems are. Tell me what's keeping you awake at night. Tell me what makes it difficult for you to find joy in this world. And when the women start to talk, when the women have a voice, and so we develop women's clubs all across the globe where it's a place for women to come together and share their heartaches and share their joys and, and support each other and empower each other. And, and so as we do that, it lifts communities up. Absolutely. And those women naturally are loving um, each other and loving the children in their villages. And I'm expressing love to them by saying, I'm going to give you a voice. I'm going to give you a place where you can be heard and I'm going to listen to you. And then when I go back home, I'm going to tell your stories. So with those women in that community where all those girls were getting married, those women celebrated when we said, well, what if we created a program where we would help you keep your girls in school? And what if we helped you put a well, a, a, a nicely dug proper well right in the middle of where your fields are? so that you guys could have water year round to grow food for your families? And what if we gave your girls bicycles so they could ride that five miles to school safely and not be accosted on their way to school? Mm -hmm. What if we helped you do that? What kind of a difference would that make? So that program, um, which is called Be That Girl, because we wanna say to those girls, you be that girl that succeeds out of your community. You be that girl that makes changes in your community. You be that girl that becomes a leader and that reaches down to help other people in your community. You be that girl. Mm -hmm. And so that program now, we, we're expanding that this year. I think we're expanding it in Zambia to, we're increasing it like to include another 250 young women. Wow. And it, it's like all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's, it's just taking, you know, I mean, it, it, we, we started it three years ago and we grew it very slowly and we grew it with the community's help to say, you know, where do we need to make this, this shift or that? And then when I come back and I'm speaking in places and I say, do you want to help a mother keep her daughter in school? Do you want to help a mother grow a garden to feed her family? People say, yeah, well, go home and talk to your children about it and see what they want to do. And maybe you put a jar on the counter. And, and next time that you want to go out and get pizza, you say, you know, we could go get pizza or we could throw the money in the jar and let's make peanut butter sandwiches or let's make pancakes at home. And we're making a sacrifice because we're not eating the pizza that we want tonight, but you guys know we're going to have pizza again, right? 
-hmm. And we're going to put that money in there. And then the kids start to feel like they're a part of it. Mm -hmm. And they can read the stories and they can realize I'm making friends around the world without ever leaving my home because we're connecting. Yeah. Have you received any pushback from men in in these communities? Because (laughs) from your laugh, I'm sure I know the answer to that. But I mean- you make it sound like they're these women are coming to you or these uh, little uh, local uh, groups, and I'm sure some of them are coming to you. But then their government or the head of their tribes are like, "No, we don't want that here." Yeah, how you common is that? You well, and probably behind my back, it's very common. <laughs> <laughs> But um, to my face, (laughs) Um, I mean, I understand how to remain genuine and say, here's what I understand about the men who behave badly. Um, What I understand is they're very scared. There's a lot of fear there. Uh, People don't behave badly out of a place of peace and harmony and and alignment within themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, those people are not behaving badly. Mm-hmm. So when people are behaving badly, regardless of their gender, and then when you add on top of it that men have been granted an inordinate amount of power around the planet, and you see where that's gotten us. And so because that has happened, that has added to a false belief that they have that they have some kind of power. So Typically, I can go to them and find ways to talk that we can talk to each other as humans rather than as a woman or a man. Um, in places where I run into a lot, you know, a lot of pushback, um, it does take a little bit. Sometimes it can take a little bit more time, and uh, we might start small in an area. And as we empower the women within their community to find their own voices, then those women are the ones that they know how to interact with the men in their community. And the one thing I have found is I get a lot of really amazing and wonderful and kind and generous men in all levels of power and government who come to me and say, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. We wanted to do it. Don't get listened to because everybody looks at us like we're some kind of a horrible man and not, they're not all horrible. Uh, Some are, some are terribly horrible. (laughs) But that's not the image we get. From it's the not outside. the image we get from the outside. No. Because, because in many cases when, okay, so let's go back to talking about, you know, you're a mother, you're a young mother, you've got kids, you feel overwhelmed, you, you know, you can't even go to the bathroom by yourself. You know, you got little fingers mm-hmm. coming in underneath the door and you're like, please, I just need a moment to think. Yeah, we all know that feeling. We all know that feeling. It's like you have no peace and that. Well, what I found is that as I worked with my children to look outside of themselves, it opened them up to um, a different kind of curiosity. So the curiosity wasn't what, what do I want? What am, how come I'm not getting what I need? And it trained my children to be able to look outside of themselves. And so what happens is there's a lot of really serious global problems happening that it can scare us enough that we want to shut down. 
And, and we just think, I can't deal with that. I, for heaven's sakes, I'm just trying to get these kids to stop throwing their food on the floor mm-hmm. and put some of it into their mouth, please. You can tell I have grandchildren. That live <laughs> 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 you know, after you've mopped up the 17th class of milk that day. Oh, and gosh. it's like, why do I even buy milk? Like, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> I get you. I totally get it. <laughs> so when we're doing that, it's easy to say, I can't look outside of myself. And what that's why I created Mothers Without Borders is it's like, no, let's join together. And when you're overwhelmed, I will offer as much well-being and kindness and peace towards you as I can. And there will be a moment when you say, do you know what? Right now I could do this with my kids or I could do this one little thing, do it. And then together we're making these huge paradigm shifting changes on the planet because we're putting our emphasis on what matters. Mm -hmm. What matters is compassion and peace and joy and recognizing our connectedness to each other. And when there are hideous people around getting a lot, a lot of voice or a lot of airtime, we don't want to connect to them, right? You know, there's this wonderful um, Cambodian Zen, Buddhist Zen um, monk. There's a beautiful story told about how he was in a, like an impossible situation after many, many of his people had been murdered back in the seventies. And uh, when he was finally able to gather, build a small, simple temple and gather his people together, everyone wondered, you know, what would he say to them? And basically all he said to them was, hate never goes away through more hate, only love mm-hmm. create and brings more love into the world. And mm-hmm. they just chanted that. And there were 25,000 people in that setting that chanted that, that love is what matters. And it's the same, whatever we're facing. And so, yes, we're facing difficult things in the West. We're facing things that are challenging us and pushing us. And I'm saying, yes, and these very same things are giving you an opportunity to crack open a window into the part of your soul that feels compassion and caring, even for those people who you believe least deserve it. And that's how you tackle big social ills, is that you don't withhold. And I I like to think of um, love and kindness and caring It doesn't mean it isn't fears because you look at how you are with your kids. What do you sometimes say to your kids because you love them so dearly? You say no. Okay. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you say no out of love and that's okay to say no, but you don't want to take away the love and let anger or despair or hopelessness or hatred fill in that space. And so we have to work extra hard Mm -hmm. right now to not, to not do that. And, um, and so I think this type of work that I'm doing has been a great blessing for me personally, because it keeps my heart open to those who, first of all, are easy to have compassion for. It's easy to have compassion for uh, marginalized women in the world. Mm -hmm. It's easy to have compassion for orphan and vulnerable children. And that allows me to expand that place in my heart where compassion lives. And then I have some that I can extend towards those in my culture or in other cultures who are behaving badly. Mm-hmm. I have so many questions because okay. this is so good. Um, would you say to make all of these programs and, and mission with the work you're doing in different countries to keep them sustainable? Because often you do something and then you leave and, and then it, it can fall apart because they are coming to you 
with their needs. Is that helpful in keeping these programs sustainable once you've left, your volunteers have left, anyone else that, you know, coming from the outside? How do you keep it sustainable and continuing? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, the way that we work is simply by, um, and, and it is simple, it's empowering local people to continue to do what they're doing. So when we go in and when I go in or one of my, the local social workers that are trained. So uh, when I have people from other from a, a country other than the country we're working in. So for example, anyone other than a Zambian, I don't have do any real work. Now, when a volunteer goes with us, we do have these volunteer ex expeditions that we host. It isn't for the international volunteers to go over there and do work. It's for them to go over there and meet the people, see firsthand, up close, knee to knee, heart to heart, what the problems are that people are facing and see how local people are solving the problems that they have. Okay. And so it's just a cultural exchange. It's an opportunity for us to talk to each other, see each other. And then we do give the volunteers a few days during the experience where they can do some manual labor because most people need that after mm -hmm. they've seen a lot of very difficult emotional things. They mm -hmm. want some manual labor. So we let them, you know, dig uh, drainage ditches that need to be put in, or we, we help cut a fire break at a local farm, or we help someone plant a garden, things like that. However, it's always local people that are doing the day-to-day -day work. And so our, our method of working is three steps. Number one, we go in and say, what are, your mo what are the problems that are most difficult for you to solve right now? Second thing we say is, what are the local resources that are available to you that you may not even be aware of? And we help them find local resources that will help them with the problem. And then we look for where is there a gap? Here's your problem. You've already used all the local resources you can find or that are available. And now there's a gap. So what do we need to fill that gap? It might require training of local people. It might require financing. It might require us building something or putting in a well that we then turn over to the community and walk away. And it's up to them to decide how to manage it and how to maintain it. Now, before we do that, we may have given that community a great deal of training to help them with some tools and resourcing, or we may not have to give them any training. They might know very well how to manage the well once, mm -hmm. once it's in their community. They just didn't have the money to actually dig the well. So there's lots of different ways. And so the reason these projects remain sustainable is because they're community driven, they're community operated, and it's the community who, who has decided. And so the community is very invested. They want it to succeed because it's their project. It's not our project. We're just coming in and saying, how can I help? that's what makes them um, sustainable. That's mm -hmm. what makes them continue to grow is because those people in that community who I will say are primarily women. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like, sometimes women will say, we need to sew our own children's school uniforms, but we don't, we don't have a working sewing machine in our community. And mm -hmm. so we say, so if we gave you a working sewing machine, that would solve your problem. They say that would solve it. That's mm -hmm. like, well, easily done. Here, we'll, we'll go tell your story. We'll see if someone wants to purchase a sewing machine for you and we'll be on our way. Now, we, do ch we still have contact with them because we create different 
community forums where people can come together with other communities and say, this is what's working for us. And that be- gives it another level of mm-hmm. sustainability, but it's not us doing it. Yeah. So these all are already communities that have a certain level of woman leadership, because I'm thinking like sort UNICEF, of. UNICEF, all of those big organizations, they're feeding th- those that are, are hungry or need vaccinations. And that's more of people that can't help themselves will just go in and give them what they need. Sometimes a community-driven initiative might be two women in the community who say, you know what, we don't have enough protein. Our kids aren't getting enough protein. Could you help us start a poultry project? And we say, yep, tell us what you need. And then we say, how is your community going to support this? Who else in the community could help you? And we might just direct them towards people in the community. There was a project that we uh, assisted with in Zimbabwe um, during a time when it was very difficult to work in Zimbabwe. And these three women from three different churches, they had come together and realized that there was over 200 orphan-headed households in their little small um, area that was very poor. Most people were living in one-room huts with no plumbing. And there were over 200 of those households that were headed up by children under the age of 10 because their parents had died. And so these children weren't eating, they weren't going to school, they were being assaulted. There was all kinds of terrible. And these three women came to me and said, what do we do? We, we feel horrible. We're, we're running around taking food to these kids, but we can't possibly feed all of them and we can't keep them safe and we can't and on and on and on. So I worked with them for about a year in training, just training them to find out who in their community could they resource to help them with this problem. Mm-hmm. And now, 10 years later, they're continuing to help solve this problem. Now, you might look at that community and say, oh my gosh, that community is a mess. And it's like, yes, but they are less of a mess than they were 10 years ago because they have more people in the community trying to help solve these problems. Mm -hmm. And then what we did do for them is say, what if we got you a food budget where you knew you could provide one meal a day to these 200 kids? And so in that way, that, that sounds a little bit more like what you were describing, like with a UNICEF effort, where we're saying, look, these women are never going to be able to come up with enough food to feed 200 kids seven days a week. Mm-hmm. So we help them with that. So mm-hmm. we created a mechanism where it's like, great, let's, let's, we, will, we will fund you this much money every single month so that you can feed these 200 kids. So we have feeding programs around different countries in Africa where it tells on our website probably how many meals we're providing a yeah. year. And that number is changing all the time. And those are just, that's just like immediate, okay, you need help right now because you're starving to death. Yeah. So I'm wondering, okay, now they're coming to you, but when you were starting this out, where did you have this idea of, okay, we'll help little communities? You, you traveled, you found some, and you just created this partnership with them and kind of had a snowball effect over the years. People found you online or word of mouth. The way I started in the beginning was um, I did a little bit of research as I looked, I got really clear on what did I want to do. 
And that's where the mission came out of. I want to mm -hmm. nurture and care for orphan and vulnerable children as if they were my own and give voice to the power of love. And then I said, okay, where, there, where is there a great need? Let's look for a place that there's, there's a lot of need, meaning where is there an increasingly growing orphan population? This is where the dream came in. So I had already started Mothers Without Borders and I'd already been doing it for a number of years. But as the AIDS pandemic became more and more and more profound, um, I, had, I had a dream one night where I, I had only been working in South America, Mexico, and Eastern Europe up until that time. Mm -hmm. And always the way I worked is I looked for where I had contacts within the industry. So where did I know somebody, say from UNICEF or from Project Concern International or from another one of the big aid agencies, where did I know somebody who worked in one of those countries? And I would call them and say, let me tell you what I'm doing. Do you know people who could benefit from these services? Mm -hmm. And in most cases, they would say, yes, absolutely. So I would say, okay, I'm going to come in November. Can you set up some meetings with me with some local community people where I can tell them how I work and let's see if there's an interest. Let's see okay. if there's a match. So that's how I did it in the beginning is I looked for where there was a need and then I looked for where I had local contacts. Um, usually people working in these bigger aid agencies who were, who were stationed overseas or former Peace Corps volunteers, people like that. And I would just ask them. I just reached out to my community and said, where should I go? Okay. So uh, you shared the part where you were a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. When did you become a working mom? Because how did you have yeah. all these contacts? So I was volunteering. So as soon as my children were all in school um, uh, during the day, um, I started volunteering at different organizations wherever I lived. And I would just go into those organizations and say, hi, I live here locally. I have about three hours a day. I would love to give to you. Um, I, I wasn't really looking to go back to work, you know, a paid job at that mm -hmm. point. And, uh, and so I went to different aid agencies, international aid agencies. That's where my interests lie. And I just said, what do you want me to do? And sometimes they would say, go in this room and seal up these envelopes or go over here and do this. And I worked my way um, in these organizations. A lot of them began to see that I had some value in some other areas. And they would say, could you help us with this? Or could you help us with that? And mm -hmm. I would say, sure, because I was free. So mm -hmm. <laughs> they were like, yeah. And they were like, you're smart and you're free. This is great. So how and long did you do that for? I did that for probably 10 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I did that um, for about 10 years and about in the middle of that 10 years, um, I was invited to come and see some things that were happening in uh, Romania. Uh, that was after communism fell and what was happening in the orphanages. And that's where, that was in 1990. And I thought, okay, I could begin. And I, I was just learning. It's These communities are the ones that have to solve the problems. They're the ones, because they're going to be here all the time. Mm -hmm. The aid agencies come and go based on their budgets, based on you know what's popular. But these people in these communities, they're going to be here. 20 years from now, 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. So how do we strengthen them? Mm. So then it was about identifying people who were like me, who just wanted to do what they could within the framework of their lives. And I think you, when you probably, when you started this podcast, 
maybe before you started it, you might've thought, I can't do this. I, I, I already, of course. <laughs> and now you're seeing, oh my gosh, I have more capacity than what I thought. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying it isn't hard. It is hard. But as you begin to expand your own capacity, then it's easier to help other people learn how to expand theirs. Mm. And that became kind of my mantra is, I am just here to show that I see you, I hear you, and I am willing to help you expand your capacity if you want me to. I love that. If you don't want me to, I'm happy to go away. I want to talk about financial aspect of your organization. You're you're very transparent. Like we can access the financial reports on yes. your website, so that's very clear. But it seems like you start all over every year. Where do you get the most money from? Is it a philanthropist, individuals, uh, government, uh, fundraisers, or is it a constant struggle every year to have enough to help everyone? Yeah, so that's such a great question. And um, it's the answer is it's private individual donations. Mm-hmm. And we're starting just like with real life and just like with raising your children, you're starting over again every day. And that's how I view it. I just view it as I am here. I am in a space. I try to create a space for myself where I am willing to get up every day and do it again. And I have a great belief in our connectedness. I have a great belief in the power of love and that if it's just an invitation. So I don't think of it as a struggle. I think of it as an opportunity to give an invitation to other humans to say, hey, I've learned a really cool secret. When I reach outside of myself and care about someone else to whatever degree I can for that day, Sometimes it's very small. Sometimes I'm in a very bad mood and I can't give very much. Other days, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's like, oh my gosh, look at all this I was able to share and give. But the reality is this, when I wake up in the morning and remember that I am connected to every other human being and every living thing on this planet, when I remember that love is what works, love is what works in all things, And it's the only thing that really works. And then I say to people, I have over the last 30 years and with a lot of wonderful volunteers in many countries, I have created a bridge, an organization, a space that I'm inviting you to come into. And I can promise you, you will make a significant difference in somebody else's life, probably somebody you don't know. Mm -hmm. And the real joy of it is you're helping someone who is in a very tough spot saying, why is this person helping me? They don't even know me. Mm -hmm. And there is a joy that comes from that. And there is an empowerment and a building of our own capacity and a building of a better world. And that's the invitation I'm making is if you're excited about that, I'm excited about it every single day because I've watched it work for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So you'll come and be a part of this. You'll be glad you did. And if somebody said, no, I'm not interested. I still love and honor that person. And I say, that's wonderful. You, you, I still care about you. You're, whether or not you donate to me, is not, it's not a gate to get into my heart. Yeah. You know, you're there. You're in my heart because you exist and because you breathe. But I'm just telling you, this is a wonderful invitation for you and for your children. And most of our donations are probably averaging about 25 or 50 US dollars. 
Mm -hmm. And of course we get someone who comes along. I had a a wonderful family just recently who said, we want to make a $50,000 donation and build a house for your farm manager so you can expand your farm. Mm. Well, that was extraordinarily generous. And for them with their net worth, that was not a huge donation for them. They said, it's kind of a small, for me, I would have to give up my entire annual salary to do that. So it just depends. But we have families, I have children that come to me and bring me a dollar and say, I want to give this Mm -hmm. so that somebody can have shoes. So that's how it happens. So Mm -hmm. financially, I just open up the invitation and I believe that we will, that the funds will come. And I, I I don't really know how, and it a little bit drives my board crazy. They would like, (laughs) they would like to have it be a little bit more like, and I say, you know what, I've been doing this for 30 years and it worked. You've been doing it for 30 years, doing it full time, or did you have like another job to, oh, no. I mean, at the end of the day, we need to pay the bills. So absolutely. Uh, what were you doing on the side? When I first started doing this, um, at the time I was married, my husband earned enough money that we could live, um, we could live on the money mm-hmm. that he made. And so I was able to, in the beginning, do what I was doing as a volunteer, but my full-time job was raising my children. So mm-hmm. I was only spending a very small amount of time just in my local area. So when I lived in San Diego, I was doing work in my local community and sometimes across the border into Mexico. Does that make sense? When I was yep. living in Taiwan, I was doing something just there in my local community, but Got mostly it. I was raising my children okay. and trying to help them be global citizens. When my children were all in school all day long, that's when I started volunteering at some of these other agencies to, to, to broaden my understanding of how this works. How does this industry work of empowering other people and helping people who are most vulnerable? So I spent a number of years volunteering because I didn't need to go to work. In about 1993, I needed to go back to work full time. Um, at that point, I was a single mom and I had four kids to feed and I needed to pay my mortgage and put food on the table and have car insurance and all those things. Mm -hmm. So I went to work full time and I did, um, I worked in uh, mid-level management training. I was paid to go into bigger companies. Um, I'm, I don't know if I'm supposed to name them, but you know, bigger companies like Mm -hmm. automobile companies and Mm -hmm technology companies and train their managers Mm -hmm. in, in management skills. So I did that for a number of years and, um, I don't think I quit my job. So I had a full-time job and I was doing this on the side. So I was doing it when I could, my children, of course, were growing up by that time. I think I had, uh, two kids left at home. One was like a senior in high school and one, I had adopted my daughter from Romania by then and she was younger. So I was still raising kids. I was a full-time working mom and I did this on the side. And that's also why I did it the way I said, which is I would go in and work with local communities and then turn everything over to them and say, I'll see you in six months. Mm. But you can always reach me. And then I quit my job in 2000. In 2000, 
I made the big leap of saying, okay, all my children, I had one daughter left at home. She was in high school. All my other kids were raised and off living their own lives. And I decided my, my parents had offered that I could come and uh, share a home with them, with my remaining daughter at home. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have a mortgage or rent to pay. And I, for about five years, then I worked full-time in Mothers Without Borders and did not collect a salary because I was putting all the money into programs. And then probably in about 2007 or eight, um, I started taking a small, I started building into our annual budget to take a salary. And then since that time, it's now 2020, um, we have three full-time employees here in the United States. We have about five part-time employees here in the United States. We have many interns, uh, non-paid interns that work for us and many hundreds of volunteers that work for us in different capacities here in the United States. We have about 60 people on salary in Zambia. They're all Zambians. And we're always looking to create more jobs in the countries, the developing countries where we work. Okay. Because reading up on you, I'm like, how did she do it? It said single mother, five kids and doing this or a nonprofit organization. I was like, how did she manage to do it? But it makes sense because your kids were in high school or older. And yes. as they grew up, you, you put in more hours. So Absolutely. It, it so I was, sense. Okay. I was always a mother. I was always a mother first and I would do this when I could. So some people you know, um, go to book clubs or do other things for their, in their free time. And this Mm -hmm. is what I was doing. And so it's really, it's just those blocks of time that you get those little bits of time here and there. And, and I did it slowly and I did it with the support of, of my family, um, and my kids. And we made decisions together. There were times when I would say, you know, if we would move to a much smaller place, We could save up this more money and then we could use it here, but we don't have to, if you don't want to. And most, Mm -hmm. in most cases, my kids were like, yeah, we don't need this much space. We Mm -hmm. can share a bedroom. And I was always doing things with my kids in the local area. So I was getting my kids involved from a very young age in local homeless shelters and doing projects for battered women's shelters and things like that within our own community Mm -hmm. so that they began to recognize how good it felt to go outside of yourself, especially during times in your life when we're more inclined, like teenagers are more inclined to turn inward. So when you give your kids opportunities to turn outward, um, you know, and not just give away your clothes that you don't want anymore, but pick out some of your clothes that you love the most and give those away. Mm, Love that. You know, do that. I'm curious how many of your kids are actually doing work that's related to a little bit what you're doing, helping those that need help, need support. Because I always wonder how much of an impact it has on them once they're adults and yours are in their 30s, 40s. So what have you seen uh, the impact on your kids now that they're adults? Yeah, it's just become a part of who they are. And so they're all in um, service-oriented work. One of them is a teacher. Uh, One of them has worked in um, 
battered women's shelters and homeless shelters and is very uh, much of an activist in helping with the homeless problem in Los Angeles. Um, my one daughter, uh, one of them, the one who lives here, just brought to my attention that one of her friends from childhood who, who came to the United States, who was a refugee into the United States, has started a project to collect shoes and, and get those down into refugee communities. And she's working, you know, hand in hand with her childhood friend. Uh, my other daughter is also in education and does a lot of work in reaching out to communities, vulnerable communities where parents are having trouble teaching their children during this difficult time. Mm -hmm. And she's offering her help and services to them. So actually all of them ended up in their own way, in mm -hmm. the ways that spoke to them and are doing things that allow them to create better communities where they live. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to raise good humans. I wanted to raise humans who would see people and who would hear people and who would demonstrate a caring nature whenever they could. And all of them Although in all different directions, they all still support me and what I'm doing, but they've found their own way and their own places that are, that they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. And with all that's been happening these last few months around racism, especially in your country, do you think that if parents would push their kids outside their comfort zone into different communities, um, it would help reduce some of these targeted uh, opinions against other people that are different, that live differently. Yeah, I think the real danger, of course, the easy ones to see are outright, outright bigotry, right? That's mm -hmm. easy to see. That's It's easy for us to see. And if you're a good human and you care, it's easy to, to find that. But I think the more insidious thing that exists globally, because I see it everywhere, are these condition biases that we have. And we have to be open to realizing, like, I have to ask myself, where are my condition biases? Where are my blind spots? What am I not seeing? By being curious and not, not being judgmental and mean with myself when, when I discover one, but just being kind and saying, wow, I do have that condition bias. I didn't even notice it before now. Those are the ones that I think we want to really have open dialogue about and talk with our children openly. And a lot of it is about being seen and heard. And small children and children can understand this when you say, how does it feel when you're misunderstood? How does it feel? Where do you feel in your body? And how does it feel? And it's always a tightness or a constriction or a sick, you know, a, a sick feeling in your gut. And then it's easy to go to the next place and say, you know, do you think there might be people in our community or in our country or in our world who, who feel like they're not being heard and, and they're being told to be quiet and, and they're being told that what they're saying isn't true? And that's where we can open up our hearts. Even if we don't see what someone else is saying, if someone is saying, I don't feel heard, if we're willing to say, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that, you, that I wasn't hearing you. Yes, I do think it helps if you take your children and expose them to people with, who are very different from them are very different. And it's as adults, if you set the pattern to say, I'm willing to have a really generous and kind conversation with someone who thinks very differently from me. Mm, I love that. <laughs> and that shows your children that that's a safe thing to do because we think we have to gather together in these little clumps and say, well, we all believe in that the trees are the most important thing. So all of us tree lovers are going to look at the bird lovers and say, you're an idiot. 
And that's a silly example, but you know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying not to use inflammatory examples <laughs> um, because there's enough inflammation going on in yeah. our country and in yeah. the world. So yes, exposing our children and saying by us having conversations when our children are present with someone who believes very differently than we do, it teaches our children, oh, it's okay to have nice conversations with somebody and go, huh, hmm. I don't agree with you, but that's very interesting to hear your viewpoint. No, I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Yeah, I love that. So what's the best way mothers and women listening can find more about the work you're doing, Mothers Without Borders, and if they want to donate, how can be the best way to do that? So if you visit the website, motherswithoutborders.org, you can, you know, just surf around the website and find out different information about the programs and what we're doing and find something that touches your heart. Um, Probably our most popular way of donating is becoming part of the Carol Zulu Club. There's like a 12 or 13 minute video about Carol Zulu, who is um, one of the little girls that was in our program early on. She died. um, She had AIDS and she died, um, but she was such a remarkable human. And it's a great video to watch with your kids and to watch and, and then become part of the Carol Zulu Club at whatever level feels right to your family. You need to really honor yourself and your own resources. And that's, I encourage people to do that. So you can donate that way. It's, it's quite easy. Um, become part of the Carol Zulu Club and you'll get updates. You'll get updates about what's happening and you'll get letters from kids and different things like that. That's kind of fun for families mm-hmm. to do, to develop those relationships. If your kids are older and you feel like it'd be a good time for you to expose your kids to an international setting, um, Zambia is very, very safe. We only take people into Zambia and no matter what countries we're working in, we only go there. It's very peaceful. It's very safe. Um, and it's an, it's an amazing experience to have either on your own or with your children to expose them to what life is like around the world and what they can do to make a difference mm-hmm. on the planet. So I would say those two things. So I'll ask you one last question. I asked everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a mother is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences keeping motherhood inspired. What one thing have you found kept you inspired and energized throughout your mom journey? I would say, what's such a great question. I would say the thing that kept me energized most of all was just remembering um, what remarkable beings were in my care and what a great privilege it was to go through the ups and the many, 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 many downs <laughs> that we got to go on together and that it was a journey we were taking together and that with a lot of forgiveness I've I've said, I'm sorry, maybe 20 billion times (laughs) Um, that it was a journey we went on together and they're remarkable beings from the very start. And that, that was the joy and continues to be the joy. Now I have 14 grandchildren and so I get to do it with them. And it's, it's a privilege and a joy and they're pounding on the door now. Yeah. Perfect timing. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, Keeping Motherhood Inspired Podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening. Two, three, four, five, six stars. Whatever you feel reflect podcast, this will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye, guys.